The Wizard of Menlo Park. It's about uh, Thomas Edison that uh, electrocuted an elephant in the early 1900s. Elephant named Topsy attacked three different uh, circus trainers and they decided they were going to kill this elephant. So initially they were going to uh, hang it, but they couldn't build scaffolding big enough, I guess. And they, they decided they were going to zap it. And back in that time, the war of the currents was going on between uh, Edison and Westinghouse. And uh, Tesla was an understudy for Edison for a while, and then he went to work for Westinghouse, and that kind of fueled the fire between Tesla, right? Yeah, it's brilliant. So, so Edison was using uh, AC current, Westinghouse's current, to zap stray animals and electrocute things to prove his current was safer than Westinghouse's. And that's what this one's about. Happy little song about electrocution. We have a very special guest from the Wolfson Centre for Mathematical Biology at the University of Oxford, Professor Philip Maney. Thank you very much for coming today, Philip. Thank you. Uh, so your group itself, I mean, the, you don't focus on a, a particular area of biology in terms of your research. Can you just tell us a little bit about the different things that you are interested in? So generally what we focus on is looking at the cell level and then look at how cells respond to signals and generate signals. And then what does that mean at the tissue level? And so then you can break that out a number of ways so you can consider the cell as a black box and say that if I know that a cell reacts in this way to a chemical or in this way to some physical cue, what will the collection of cells do? And then you can also break it down and say, well, um, let me look inside the cell and try and understand why it behaves the way it behaves. Then, of course, what you really want to do at the end of it is maybe try and link all that together and have a multi-scale model. So can you give us a specific example of a, a model that you work on and just explain to us? Yeah. So, I can give, so one example I can give is work that we're recently doing, which is um, neural crest cell invasion. So these are cells that very early in development leave the neural crest and then they have to go to... Depending where they leave the neural crest, they have to go to different parts of the body. And um, we work on cranial neural crest. So just to explain to people, neural crest cells generally go into the body and then turn into nerve cells. That's right, yep. So why this is very interesting is these cells move long distances and they're also the precursors of many aggressive cancers. For some reason, in early development, they're moving and they're doing their thing correctly and then if they become cancerous then obviously they're moving long distances but not responding to things correctly and so one of the issues there is well what is causing these cells to move one theory is that the overlying domain produces a signal called VEGF and that as the the cells emerge they consume VEGF VEGF is a chemoattractant which means that cells move up a chemical gradient. And so as a verbal model, that actually sounds 
perfectly sensible. Mm-hmm. So you, you have a self-induced gradient, causes everything to move. But if you try and write this down mathematically and put in the actual numbers, what you find is that by the time a certain number of cells have invaded the tissue, they've used up all the VEGF. So the new cells coming out have no, no signal, so it doesn't work. So then we ask the question, what would those newly emerging cells see? And all they would see is their, their friends in front of them. So we said the hypothesis, well, let's suppose they grab hold of the friends in front of them. So they respond to their friends, not to the signal. Colleagues who work with at the Stowers Research Centre looked at gene expression. What you find is that it works. So there's, so there's a definite model prediction mm-hmm. that the front cells and the back cells are different. So then we got together with them and we made... Um, we designed experiments with them. It's a way to test. Then the model can make predictions of what would happen if you took tissue from one part of this trail of movement and put them into a different part of a host. What we found was some of the experiments agreed precisely with the model. Some of them didn't agree with the model. And in fact, I usually find that when things don't agree with the model, that's when you really learn. So one of the things we learned about this was that the cells actually changed their phenotype with one of the experiments because the model predicted that if the cells are fixed as leaders or followers, mm-hmm. they'd behave in a certain way. And that wasn't the way they behaved when, you, when they did the experiment. And the way you could explain the way they behaved in the experiment is that the cells get their cue from the environment. I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that the IMO have been, I think, the leaders, you know, people like Bob Gaten, they in saying that you've got to look at the whole environment not just look at the cancer and say, well, right, here's the cells, that the bad things, let's just get rid of them, that um, it's an ecosystem and that you've got to look at how the cells interplay with the environment. And you can see the how... Um, sim- and, and it leads to a very simple view, of, like the anti-androgenesis, the idea that when um, tumour cells begin to grow, they need a vasculature, they create a vasculature, something called angiogenesis, and the idea was that if you reduce the number of um, uh, blood vessels, you'll kill off the cancer. Mm-hmm. That would be fantastic if that's, that's the way it had worked. But I think what people hadn't realised in those days was how complicated and subtle cancer is. And, and I think actually this is one way where a mathematical approach can, can really help you, because mathematicians are taught to think in extremes and so if you were to say think about the idea um, if I get more and more vasculature then the tumour is going to grow more and more because it's going to get more and more nutrient so I should reduce the vasculature and therefore the tumour will get less nutrient and will grow less now a mathematician would not accept that because a mathematician always thinks in weird ways and a mathematician would think the following way she would think, suppose this vasculature is such that a lot of it is concentrated in one place and there's not much of it elsewhere. Then all the nutrient would be concentrated in one place and only those cells could grow. So the majority of cells couldn't grow. And now suppose you went in and you did anti-angiogenesis therapy and killed some of those vasculature you'd release the oxygen to the larger community of cells 
and you'd actually increase the growth. So a mathematician would say, no, it is not right to say decreasing vascular growth will decrease tumour growth. And what do we find now? We find that decrease in vascular growth can lead to increased tumour growth. And we can use that by now applying chemotherapy. And you have the double whammy of you've got better perfusion, better flow of the chemotherapy into the, the tumour, and those cells are dividing because they're getting lots of oxygen. Then you, you kill them. So what you've learned from that is that it's not a simple disease. There are lots of aspects to it, and that's why I would argue that you need a mathematical model because mathematics is a language, and so we're chatting to each other in a language at the moment called English, and English and our verbal reasoning and our intuition is linear, and that's why we come up with these ideas about reducing an, you know, angiogenesis will reduce the vasculature, because we think in a linear way. Mathematics starts to extend your intuition into thinking about subtleties. And when you've got a system that's as non-linear and as complicated as biology, we only have one language that can deal with that, and that's mathematics. There are some trains of thought now that big data is going to be the answer to everything. So why bother focusing on these little mechanisms that, that you in particular are studying? What I would say is that there shouldn't be um, the big sort of hysteria at the moment about big data. The hysteria should be when we start getting good data. That's what's important. And what I'm worried will happen is that people will try and understand these big data and some of it will be experimental artefact, some of it will be noise in the system that we don't know how to deal with, and at the end of it all, we will still not understand the mechanism. The mechanistic models that I'm talking about, to be validated, require you to be able to focus on how things change over time. And traditionally, that's been very difficult to do in a biological context, because basically, you have to kill the system in order to obtain data from it. Now with advances in imaging and fair staining techniques, I think we're in a very exciting part of science because we're now in a position where it will be feasible over the next few years to validate these mechanistic models. And then once you understand mechanism, that's much more powerful than understanding a correlation. We know there's a correlation between smoking and cancer, lung cancer. So you lower smoking and then you lower lower lung cancer. But suppose we could find out the mechanism of what causes this correlation, then people could continue smoking as much as they want, (laughs) as long as they then took the tablet, or whatever it was, that reversed the effect of smoking. And I must say, this is a fundamental difference, actually, between biology and mathematicians. The word understanding means different things in biology to to mathematics, because in Biology, understanding means description. Mm -hmm. So I understand limb development when I can describe the different Hox genes that are switched on in different parts of the the limb during development. Mathematician would say that's posing the question and the work starts from there. And then this is why the statistical approach and the big data approach are so enticing because they don't explain anything. 
they describe stuff. Another thing I was just thinking is that this would probably be interesting to people who are obviously trying to argue against having animals in science. And one of the things that a lot of you know, the anti-vivisection groups will say is that, well, you guys are now making computer programs. You can model what's happening within an animal or a human being without having to use them. How close are we to actually being able to do anything like that? Well, I think the key thing is model validation. And I think that to date there are very, very few mechanistic models that have been validated there are some models of ion channels in the heart that in Oxford have been validated to the extent that um, some of the drug companies have incorporated the modelling mm-hmm. as part of their um, in, in, in part of their sort of drug assessment. So it's beginning to happen. But the real issue is the validation of the models. And model validation is a whole area of mathematics and of statistics in itself. I don't think mathematical modelling will, in the near future, replace experiments. But what it can tell you is how to do more informative Mm -hmm. experiments and therefore reduce the number of experiments that are done. But I don't think you, at this stage, can get away from continuing to do experiments. But it still leaves the issue that then you are still trying to understand what happens in an animal that isn't human. human. So one thing is actually, I mean, my interest has changed because when I, I'm trained as a mathematician mm-hmm. and what I found was that the, in developmental biology, which I actually think is a, is a beautiful subject because scientifically I think is a very beautiful subject. It's a very challenging subject. And I was very interested in the mathematical side of um, the sort of equations and all that, that came up. But now I'm finding my interest is changing and becoming more into things like model validation and trying to really link with experimentalists on the on the work that they're doing and really trying to get new insights in, into the into the biology using mathematics. Uh, so my interests have changed over the time, and um, and I think that then one just realizes how complicated uh, biology really is and that one has to sort of draw back one's ambitions about what's achievable in, in a certain length of time. I'll tell you what's... But I'll tell you one thing that's not actually to do with science but is to do with the way science is done. So when I came back to Oxford, I was about uh, in 1990 and I was sitting at lunch one day and, then one, and some of the older colleagues were talking to each other and they were paraphrasing... Planck statement about the advance of science and and the paraphrase being that science advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a longer statement that that um, he, he made which is along the lines of um, you know when you come up with new ideas you can't convince your colleagues about these new ideas and you have to wait until they basically leave the scene before new ideas can come on the board. And I can remember listening to this, uh, eavesdropping on this, and thinking to myself at the time, that is the most stupid thing, stupidest thing I've ever heard. 23 years later, I think it's the most honest and <laughs> the most perceptive thing I've heard. You know, the fact that, you know, why can't somebody not say, be big enough to say, I was wrong, I thought it was happening this way, 
now I think it's happening that way. And having asked that question, I know the answer to it. The answer is they would never get funding again. A great kind of insight into how science works, certainly as far as the qualification goes, is um, a comic called Piled Higher and Deeper. Oh, yes, that's and right. So basically the acronym is PhD. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's amazing. Anybody who's got a PhD, you'll ask them, they'll say, right. yes, it hits the nail on the head that's, every single time. That's right, yeah. It's brilliantly funny and it's... Yeah, it's, it's a great it's insight into so these kinds insightful. of topics. Yeah. That's right. Thank you very much for speaking to us this evening, and um, we hope you have a safe and productive stay in Tampa. And uh, yes, have a safe trip back to Oxford. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. rescued by the army once. Really? Early, when I was 10 or 11 years old in Belfast, so me and my friends, you know, we went off and then they said, parents said, right, go up this, you know, we want to go up this mountain. They said, right, come back by five o'clock. So we wandered off and then, of course, you know, it's the sort of thing that you think, well, we just get to the top and then when you get to the top, there's another top. And then this big army truck came up. You know, this was during the Troubles, like yeah, 1970s. And then they stopped next to us, and the guy got out and said, is one of you called Philip? <laughs> <laughs> and that was when we realised we were in trouble. We got stuck and in, put into this army truck. And what had happened was the it's army was passing by, and my dad just waved them down. <laughs> been listening to a two scientists podcast 
Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle 2Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at 2Scientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. I haven't seen anything compete with that yet.